One of the most perplexing questions for some Christians to grapple with is why Satan and his demons continue to oppose the Lord Jesus when they know what the Bible says about their future defeat and their future judgment. Doesn't Satan know what the Bible has to say about his future defeat and future judgment in the lake of fire? Yes, he does. Don't the demons know what the Bible has to say about their future defeat and future judgment in the lake of fire? Yes, they do. Then why do they continue to do what they do? They know their defeat is inevitable, and they know their judgment is certain. So why do they continue to do what they do? I don't pretend to know the complete answer to that question, except to say that it is a profound example of the deceitfulness of sin. It vividly illustrates the blinding power of sin. You've probably seen a similar kind of blindness in people's lives and maybe even in your own life at some point or at some time. Maybe you've seen people who are literally destroying their lives with sinful choices, but they seem to be completely blind to what they are doing. Everyone else can see how foolish they are and how destructive their choices are, but it seems that they're just not able to see it. That's the way sin is. It blinds the mind and it dulls the senses and it obscures reality. That's why Jesus described the repentance of the prodigal son by saying this, but when he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, sin and rebellion are a kind of spiritual insanity. Therefore, it's impossible to understand completely why Satan and demons continue to do what they do. They resist the Lord. They resist His plan, even though they know they are headed toward eventual torment, an eternal torment, in the lake of fire. We see an example of that in the text to which we come this morning. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 5, if you are not already there, and follow along as I read verses 1 through 17 of Mark chapter 5. We read, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs, And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? 
I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, Jesus asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us to the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So those who fed the swine, so, so those who had fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. As we have seen in our study of this gospel record thus far, Mark has a specific purpose for recording these miraculous events in the life and ministry of our Lord. Mark's purpose is to demonstrate the authority of Jesus. The teaching of Jesus in parables throughout chapter 4 demonstrates the authority of Jesus' words and Jesus' teaching. The miracles of chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5 demonstrate the authority of Jesus' actions. Jesus was a man of authority, ultimate authority. He demonstrated authority in his words, and he demonstrated authority in his actions. We have already seen his authority over demons or unclean spirits, his authority over fever, his authority over leprosy, his authority over paralysis, his authority over the wind and the sea, and now we see another stunning example of his authority over demons or unclean spirits. What are demons? What are unclean spirits? I don't want to assume that everyone here knows the answer to that question. You see, some people wrongly believe that demons or unclean spirits are the spirits of evil men who have died. They wrongly believe that these spirits of deceased men come back to haunt people. The Bible teaches no such thing. What are demons? Demons are evil, fallen angels. When Satan rebelled against God, he took many of the angels with him in his rebellion. Based on a passage in the book of Revelation, we assume the number was one-third. One-third of all the angels joined Satan in his rebellion. Those fallen angels are called demons. There are several scriptures that prove this. In Matthew 12, 24 to 26, Jesus referred to Satan as the ruler of the demons. In Matthew 25, 41, Jesus spoke of the devil and his angels. 
The same phrase is used in Revelation 12.7. In Hebrews 1.14, angels are called spirits. So there is no doubt whatsoever that demons are fallen angels that followed Satan in his rebellion against God. Because they were created by God to be his angels, demons still have supernatural ability. They have tremendous power. And that is why Mark includes this account here in chapter 5. If you want to understand the authority and power of Jesus, if you want to catch a glimpse of the authority and power of Jesus, all you have to do is see how he demonstrated his authority over demons. And that is exactly what we have in this story here in verses 1 through 17. So let's consider this text together to see why the Spirit of God prompted Mark to write and record this particular incident. We begin in verse 1 where Mark tells us, Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now some of your versions, some of your translations say the country of the Gadarenes, and some say the country of the Gerasenes. It probably wouldn't make uh, much difference to anyone here, uh, which it was, because we don't have any idea where this is anyway, right? I mean, who knows where this was? Well, this area was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, where the modern village of Kersey is located. In fact, verse 2 says, And when Jesus had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Archaeological excavations at Kersey have revealed the fact that ancient tombs are there. In addition, the shoreline right there at Kersey, the shoreline on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, descends steeply into the water of the Sea of Galilee. In fact, it's the only place at all around the entire Sea of Galilee where there is a steep bank heading down into the water. So the particulars of this location match the events of the story that Mark records here. We know from historical and archaeological records that the people of this region worshipped idolatrous gods of fertility, specifically Beelzebub, and they saw the pig as the sacred animal of their fertility cult. You could say it this way. The pig was to these people what the lamb was to the Jewish people. What I mean is, just as the Jewish people offered lambs as their sacrifice to the true God, these people offered pigs as a sacrifice to their idolatrous God. That's important to know for what occurs later in the story. Mark tells us that when Jesus arrived, a demon-possessed man came out of the tombs to confront Jesus. Interestingly, Matthew mentions two men, and Luke only mentions one man, which probably indicates that one of the two was even more fierce and dominant. There was a dominant figure of the two, and that's the one that Mark centers on. Matthew tells us that these men, both of them, were exceedingly fierce. They were filled with the anger and rage and fierceness and fury of wicked demons. These men were so fierce that according to Matthew, no one could even pass by the area. No one could even walk by. 
that may indicate that they would come out of the tombs and attack anyone who tried to pass by. Luke mentions that this particular man, in the focus here in Mark's account, wore no clothing, no clothes. Needless to say, this would be a chilling and scary situation for anyone to encounter. But Jesus walked right into the lion's den, as it were. He did not avoid this confrontation with this demon-possessed man. In fact, the implication or indication is that he specifically went there for this purpose. This kind of encounter would be enough to cause you to shudder, but Jesus didn't shudder. So Mark tells us in verse 3 that this particular man that he's focusing on had his dwelling among the tombs, and no one could bind him, not even with chains. This shows the fierceness and rage and strength of this demon-possessed man. In fact, multiple negatives are used in the Greek text to emphasize the man's tremendous strength. It's fascinating the way Mark words this in the original text, saying, no one, no chains, nothing could bind this man. How was it known that this man could not be bound with chains? The answer is because people had tried to do it. It had been attempted. Verse 4 says, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains. And the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. This man was completely uncontrollable. He couldn't be bound by rope or cord or chains or shackles or fetters or anything. That is superhuman strength because it was demonized strength. And verse 5 tells us, And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. The previous verses have emphasized the superhuman strength that the demon gave this man. But this verse emphasizes the torture that the demon inflicted on the man. The demon was driving the man mad or insane and drove the man to cut himself with stone. You know, every time I read this account and accounts like this in the Gospels, I'm always intrigued with the modern phenomenon of cutting, a very, very popular thing in our society among women and men, self-inflicted wounds. Interestingly, in the Gospels, this was always from a demonic source, demons driving people to cut themselves, to inflict pain on themselves. That's what we see here in this story. It's a scary picture. As you read what we've read thus far, it's a scary picture of both the strength and the wickedness of demons. This man was in a hopeless condition until Jesus showed up on the scene. Verse 6 says, When he saw Jesus from afar... He ran and worshipped him. 
This is a very difficult verse to interpret, and let me explain why. In verse 5, the personal pronoun he is used to refer to the man. But in verse 7, the personal pronoun he is used of the demon. Therefore, it is difficult to know if it was the man who was worshiping Jesus or if it was the demon who was worshiping Jesus. I lean toward the view that it was the man because the last time the word he was used, it is clearly a reference to the man. And here in verse 6, the he is the person who ran toward Jesus. However, I recognize, on the other hand, you can argue that it was the demon who was driving the man to cut himself, and it was the demon who drove the man to bow before Jesus. That's why I said this verse is difficult to unscramble. Either way you take it, it is obvious that in verse 7, it is the demon who is speaking to Jesus. In verse 7, he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you, I adjure you, by God, that you do not torment me. This is an amazing interchange. Look at that verse. Did you notice how accurate this demon was in his theology? This demon knew, like all demons know, that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Son of the Most High God. That is a title of deity. This demon understood that Jesus was no mere man. Yes, he was a man. He was truly and fully and genuinely human, but he wasn't only a man. He was God in human flesh. This demon knew that. Not only that, this demon knew that he would eventually be judged. He knew it was certain because it is recorded in the inspired and errant word of God. He knew all of this. In fact, think about it this way. Before his choice to rebel with Satan, he was in the Lord's presence in heaven. He knew Jesus. He knew who he was. He knew what had been planned by God from eternity past. He knew about the incarnation. He knew about the Lord's birth in Bethlehem. He knew all this. Isn't that amazing? The demons know the truth. But they still refuse to give their allegiance to the blessed Son of God. It's an illustration of the fact that a person can know all the right theology, all the right doctrine, and still not be a Christian. A person can know all the facts of the gospel and even believe they are true, but not be willing to surrender his or her heart to the Lordship of Christ. Please hear this. Intellectual assent to the gospel doesn't make you a Christian. Intellectual assent to the truth doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you can say, hey, I know the Bible is true. I know there's a God. I know that Jesus is the Son of God. I know that Jesus died on the cross. I know he rose again the third day. I know all of that. I believe all of that. That doesn't make you a Christian. The demons know all of that. They believe all of that. They don't doubt it in, in the least. So understand that believing the truth in an intellectual way doesn't make you a Christian. It's possible to believe the truth 
but not be willing to yield to the Lord Jesus. It's possible to know the truth and believe it intellectually, but not want to embrace it emotionally and volitionally. This demon is an illustration of that fact. He knew knew who Jesus was. There's no doubt in his mind. And he knew that his future judgment was absolutely certain. And I also know from the parallel account in Luke 8 that he also knew, he was aware of the fact that some of his fellow demons had already been judged by Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry in the sense of being cast into a temporary holding place known in the Bible as the abyss or the pit. This demon knew what that fact, this demon knew what had happened to some of his fellow demons already in the life and ministry of Jesus. Luke 8.31 tells us that they, and of course it's plural because as we'll find out as this story unfolds, it wasn't just one demon, many demons. So Luke 8.31 tells us that they begged him, begged Jesus, that he would not command them to go into the abyss. The abyss, abyssos in Greek, is the prison where some, not all, where some demons are bound to await their future judgment in the lake of fire. I emphasize not all are there. Many demons are free. Many demons are free to roam about this world, wreak havoc in this world and in people's lives. But some demons are bound in the abyss. According to 2 Peter 2, 4 and Jude 6, the abyss is where the demons of Genesis 6 were sent when they tried to destroy the messianic line by cohabiting with women. Do you remember that story, that bizarre, strange story in Genesis 6? Because of the heinous nature of their sin, those demons that took on human form, took human wives, produced an unusual offspring, because of the heinous nature of their sin, they were sent to the abyss. That's where they are right now. They are in the pit. They're not free to roam around as other demons are. This demon didn't want that same fate. He didn't want to be sent to the abyss Or plural, they didn't want to be sent to the pit. This demon wanted to remain free so he could continue trying to destroy people's lives as he was doing to this man and the people of this community. That's why this demon didn't leave when he knew that Jesus was coming. He didn't want to leave. And once he was confronted by Jesus, he didn't want to be sent to the abyss or the pit. He wanted to remain free. But Jesus isn't about to allow him to remain free. He's going to send him to the abyss, to the pit. Verse 8, For Jesus said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. When Jesus began telling this demon to come out of the man, the demon began to panic. The demon knew what was coming next. He knew where he would be sent when Jesus commanded him to leave this man. Furthermore, Jesus knew what was going on behind the scenes. So he asked a question to bring the situation out in the open. Notice the question that Jesus asked in verse 9. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? And he answered saying, my name is Legion, for we are many. This is an amazing statement. 
The term legion was the term used of a military unit of 6,000 men. Jesus asked this question to reveal the fact that this man was controlled by an extremely large number of demonic spirits. There were thousands of demons in this man and in this region of the land of Israel, which gives us insight into the next verse, verse 10. Also, he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. You see, the demons had established a foothold in the land of Israel, and they were promoting their demonic, idolatrous religion in that region, not only to entrap men and women in error, but also to resist the work of Messiah Jesus. Just like the demons in Genesis 6 who cohabited with women, these demons had a purpose that went beyond their immediate actions. They were trying to resist and thwart and defeat the plan of God to save mankind through the Messiah. So Jesus confronted them head on, and at the same time, he dealt with the pigs that the people used in their heinous worship of their false gods. Verse 11 tells us, Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. As I said earlier, the people of this region saw the pig as the sacred animal of their fertility cult. Just as the Jewish people offered lambs as a sacrifice to, their, to the true God, these people offered pigs as a sacrifice to their idolatrous God. It was despicable that such a practice was going on in the land of Israel. So verse 12 tells us, So all the demons begged Jesus, saying, Send us to the swine, that we may enter them. Now why did they ask that? I don't know for sure why they asked to go into the herd of swine. My guess is that they assumed that by going into the herd of swine, they would escape the fate of being cast into the abyss. And they probably intended to go into the swine until Jesus left their region, after which they would come out and find some other people to possess. Now, it might sound stupid to suggest that they thought such things, but if you stop to think about it, it really isn't any more stupid than what they have already done. What I mean is, it was stupid for them to stay in this region when they knew Jesus was there. It was stupid for them to approach Jesus. It was stupid of them to acknowledge the Lordship of Christ and their future judgment without any repentance or without any remorse. It was stupid of them to try to get Jesus to agree to their preferences. It's all madness. The whole thing is lunacy, spiritual insanity. So it wouldn't be any more stupid to suggest that they thought they could hide out in the swine until Jesus moved on, and then they could come back out and do what they wanted to do. But I don't know for sure why they asked to go into the swine because the text doesn't tell us. We do know from Luke's gospel that they didn't want to be sent to the abyss. And that's why they made this request to go into the herd of swine. They asked Jesus if they could avoid going into the, the abyss. So did Jesus grant their request? What do you think? Without even analyzing the rest of the account, from what you know of Jesus' ministry, do you think that he would ever acquiesce to the request and preferences of demons? I mean, if they said to him, Jesus, 
Would you consider changing your mind about the future and allow us to stay out of the lake of fire? Do you think Jesus would comply? Not a chance. And there's no reason for us to doubt that on this occasion, Jesus is going to send them into the abyss. They knew what he was going to do. And that's why they pleaded with him not to do it. They knew what was coming. But sometimes people get confused when they read this story because they end up focusing on the pigs and not on the demons. The pigs are really a side issue in a sense. Yes, Jesus dealt with the pigs that were being used in such an abominable way, but the focus of this story is the authority of Jesus over the demons. So let's not forget that as we read the next verse. Verse 13 says, And at once Jesus gave them permission to go into the swine. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. So the pigs have been dealt with. They're done. But what about the demons? In my mind, there's no reason to doubt that they met their fate also by being sent into the abyss. In fact, think about this. It seems that the plunging of the pigs into the depth of the water was a tangible sign of what happened to the demons. Think about it. If Jesus, if Jesus had simply told the demons to leave the man and go into the abyss, how could anyone have seen whether or not that happened? No one can see that. You can't see demons. They're spirit beings, spirit creatures. You can't see demons. You can see the result maybe in the man's life once the demons leave, but you can't see where they go. You can't see them going into the abyss or the pit. Demons, when you, you can't see demons leave people's bodies. But you can see pigs rush down a cliff into the depth of the water. So in a sense, Jesus gave a visible, tangible object lesson of what happened to the demons. Just as the pigs plunged into the depth of the water, so also the demons were thrust into the depth of the abyss. The demons had been dealt with, and at the same time, Jesus rid the region of the unclean animals that were being used in the worship of Beelzebub. Furthermore, this man was delivered from the demonic control. Now you would think, you would think that this would cause everyone in that region to want to believe in Jesus and to be a follower of Jesus. But that's not what happened. Verse 14 tells us, so those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country. And they went out to see what it was that had happened. As I say, this should have made the people of this region ecstatic. This should have caused them to laud Jesus and extol him. People had tried to bind this man, chains and ropes and shackles and everything. This man was a torment to the region. No one could even go near without being attacked, haunted by this man. So this should have caused the people to be happy beyond words. And they, they should have just been amazed at Jesus and, and wanted to 
extol him, but that's not what they did. Verse 15 tells us, Then they came to Jesus and and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legion sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Luke tells us that the people of this city were gripped. Here's the exact quote from Luke. Gripped with great fear. Mark says basically the same thing. One of the reasons why they were seized with fear was because they realized this man, Jesus, was more powerful than the God they worshipped. The God they worshipped wasn't able to deliver this man. The God they worshipped wasn't able to do anything for this man. Jesus was more powerful than Beelzebub. But rather than turning to Jesus, the people shockingly ask him to depart. Verse 16 says, And those who saw it told them how it happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with Jesus to depart from their region. Why did they ask him to depart? Maybe they were upset with their financial loss. 2,000 animals dead, plunged into the Sea of Galilee. Maybe they were upset with the attack on their religious practices because this was a direct attack by Jesus on their religion. Or maybe they were afraid that Jesus was going to judge them for their idolatry just as he had judged the demons. They didn't want to mess with this man. He had power. This man had authority. The demon-possessed man had been scary because of his fierce power. But Jesus was even more scary to them. If he could cast out fierce demons, he was not to be resisted. But you see, here's the rub. They had no intention of yielding their lives to Jesus. None. His authority then was a threat to their independence. Like many people today, they just wanted Jesus to leave them alone. They wanted to do their own thing. Don't tell me what to do. Jesus' authority was a threat to their self-will. They weren't interested in knowing Jesus and loving Jesus and following Jesus. They had no interest whatsoever. And that's part of the reason why they were afraid. They knew they didn't want to believe in him and love him and follow him and obey him, but they also knew he could judge them instantly if he were inclined to do so. They had just seen it. Thus they were afraid. I'm sure some of them were thinking, wow, if Jesus did that to the demons who resisted him, what will he do to us for not being willing to obey him? We don't want to obey him. We don't want him. What's what's he going to do to us? That surely was part of what was in their minds. So they asked him to depart. Look at that. They asked him to leave. Why didn't they want him? Why wouldn't they want someone who is so good and so powerful and so loving? I mean, think about this man's life. We don't know how long he had been in this condition. Think about the grace that Jesus showed this man, the goodness to deliver him from the torture of the demon driving him to cut himself, 
crying out, screaming in the tombs. Why wouldn't the people want someone who is so good and so powerful and so loving? After all, they had just seen what he did for this demon-possessed man. Jesus had delivered him and transformed him and changed him and, and basically given him new life. So again, I ask, why wouldn't the people want Jesus? Here's the answer. Because they didn't want to be changed. They didn't want it. They didn't want to have new lives. They were content with the lives they had. They, they liked their own religion. They were happy with the way things are or were. They wanted to keep doing what they'd always been doing. It's inconceivable. But it's no more inconceivable than what people do in our day. It's the same thing. People look at Jesus. They know who he is. They know what he can do. And it's thanks but no thanks. I want to live my own life. I don't want to be changed. Mark says they began to plead with him to depart from their region. They came out to meet Jesus, and after meeting him, they decided they didn't want him. Imagine it. They rejected him, having met him, and seen what his power could do to transform their lives. It's hard to wrap your mind around it. Why do people not want Jesus? Why do they reject him even after they have become familiar with him and know what he can do for them? Why? To borrow a phrase from John's Gospel, chapter 3, they love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. It's another example of the blinding power of sin. That's the way sin is. It blinds the mind, it dulls the senses, it obscures reality. Sin and rebellion are a kind of spiritual insanity. That's why the Bible uses the phrase, the deceitfulness of sin. It is so deceitful. People are deceived by it. They think their life is good, they think they're in control. It's spiritual insanity. So I ask you this morning, do you want Jesus? Or do you want the same old life you've always had? Let me ask it another way. Do you see Jesus as an intrusion in your life? Would you just assume that he leave you alone? If so, you repeat the foolish tragedy of these people who lived so very long ago. Jesus is a man of authority and power. He has the power to transform your life, and he has the power, he has the power and authority to direct your life. But listen to this. If you want him to transform your life, you must be willing to allow him to direct your life. The two go hand in hand. What, what will you do with Jesus? Will you submit to him? Or like these people, will you send him away? Jesus, leave me alone. Thanks, but no thanks. What will you do with Jesus? Let's bow together as we close this morning.
And as we bow together, ask yourself that question. Honestly. Genuinely. How do you view Jesus? Are you like the demon in that you view him accurately? Oh, I know who Jesus is. He's the Son of God. He's the one who died and rose again. He's the one who will ultimately judge. It's possible to have the same view of Jesus that the demon had of Jesus. Where you have all the right theology, all the right doctrine. You believe all the right stuff, but your will is not surrendered to him. Your volition is not yielded to him. Or you can be like the people in the story who see his power, know his power, but don't want anything to do with him. What will you do with Jesus? Will you yield or send him away? I urge you not to repeat the foolish, absolutely foolish actions, choices of the people of this region who met Jesus and sent him away. Father, when we read a story like this, in one sense, we, we're shocked. We just we can't imagine this. We, we, we can't even understand, in a sense, how this demon or these demons, this multitude, thousands of demons, could know the truth and just yet keep doing what they're doing, knowing they're headed for judgment. And it is also, in a sense, beyond us to understand how the people of this region could make such a choice that they made. That they would be willing to meet Jesus, see his goodness, see his love, see his power, see his willingness to release people, deliver people from bondage, and yet want nothing to do with him. And yet ask him to depart. And when we look back, we're, we're startled. And yet, we look around us and we see basically the same thing. We all know, we all know people in our lives, friends, family members, associates, who know about Jesus. They know something. Maybe they know a lot. But bottom line is they don't want him. They just don't want him. What, a, what an illustration of the hardness of our hearts the deceitfulness of sin, the foolishness, the blinding power of sin. Father, break through that. We ask you to break through it in our lives. We ask you to break through it in the lives of our friends and family members. Break through the blindness. Break through the deceit. Prompt our hearts to want the Lord Jesus. And we specifically, especially pray that for anyone here with us this morning, anyone in our midst, who may know the truth, may even believe the truth intellectually, but certainly is not impacted to live by the truth. Father, may your Spirit do His work in that person's life. Draw us to want to know and follow and love the Lord Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.